Thanks for joining us today in this, the inaugural episode of the Bible Readers Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Hartley, high school theology teacher and Catholic convert. In this episode of the Bible Readers Podcast, we begin our journey through the scriptures at the beginning. Not just the beginning of the Bible, but the beginning of time and space. We're reading Genesis chapters 1 through 3. And if you've never read it before, or if it's been a while, just take a few minutes before listening to this and open up your Bible and read along. If you're not sure what translation you use, use the one you have. And if you don't have a Bible on hand, use one online. You can find plenty of free Bibles at places like BibleGateway.com. I'll be using the Revised Standard Version, Catholic Edition, but feel free to use any version that you prefer. Today, we'll be exploring the creation story, as well as the story of the fall of mankind. We'll discuss what the biblical author's intent was in recording a creation narrative, as well as the question of how literally to take the account of creation. With that said, let's open up the Bible and explore the wonderful story of God's salvation on the Bible Readers Podcast. Where does the Bible start? What is the opening subject of the scriptures? When we interpret the Bible, I think it's really important for us to ask what questions is the biblical author concerned with asking and answering. This gets one of the main principles of biblical interpretation, and that is understanding authorial intent. So when we open up the scriptures, especially in this creation narrative, because there's a lot of debate about how to interpret the creation narrative or uh, what the main point of the creation narrative is, I think it's really important to take strong note of what subjects it is that the Bible starts with, in particular this passage, Genesis 1 through 3. And I think when we open up the Bible, it's pretty clear what the main focus of the scriptures is. And we see that immediately right out the gate in the first sentence of the scriptures. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first subject that the biblical authors are concerned with covering is God. God is the starting place for the entire Bible and the creation narrative in general. I think that's really important to take note of because we're going to get into some of the questions about, for instance, how literally to take the creation narrative or or how we can uh, uh, make the creation narrative found in the Bible cogent with the modern scientific theories about the beginnings of, of the universe. So when we open up the Bible and we find it starts first with God that gives us a hint as to what questions the author is concerned with asking and answering. There's a lot of debate surrounding the creation narrative within Christian circles, and much of that debate centers around how literally to take this passage, mainly because an entirely literal interpretation of Genesis 1 through 3, and really Genesis 1 through 11, is not, it cannot be reconciled with modern scientific accounts of the age of the earth and the origin of species. But to focus on that issue is really myopic. It's, it, it really is to look for answers that the author of Genesis is not concerned with giving. In fact, he's not concerned with asking any of those types of questions. The author of Genesis is not concerned with asking questions about when and how. 
right? When did the earth begin? How old is the earth? And how did the world as we know it today come about, i.e. through uh, the evolution of species? Instead, the author's not concerned with asking those questions. I want to be really clear. Instead, the author is asking questions, who and why? Who, who, who is being talked about? Who? God, man, creation. What is that? Who are they? And why? What is the purpose of the creation of the world? Those are the questions he's concerned with. So if you come to the opening of the book of Genesis and the scriptures in particular, and you're asking questions about scientific beginning, you're asking questions about the age of the earth, you're asking questions about the evolution of species. I'm not saying those are entirely irrelevant questions, but they are not questions that the author of the book of Genesis is concerned with. Which means if you're going to the Bible for answers there, you're not going to find them. Genesis 1 through 3 is not a scientific textbook. We can talk a little bit about what that means and what the implications are that in terms of of, of uh, uh, making that coincide with Christian belief about the creation of the world. But I just want to be really clear from the outset that those are not the questions we're concerned with. So those aren't, aren't the questions I'm going to be particularly discussing because... I don't think they're the questions that the that the the author is asking. So, I want to ask the questions and I want to look for the answers that the author of the Bible is giving. And I think those questions are who and why. So, so let's start with that first one. Who? Right? I already mentioned it that the the first subject of the scriptures, we get it in the very first sentence is God. Who is God? What does this text communicate about who God is? Now, in order to do this, I actually have to jump ahead a little bit and talk about uh, who, who is writing the book of Genesis and the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and, and talk about what the context that these books are written in. So there's a long editing history of the Pentateuch, um, and it's probably finished being edited sometime during the, the Israelite exile, way later on in Israelite history. But they're initially written and, and uh, worked through at the time of the Exodus, the second book of the Bible. So the, in the Exodus, just really quick, the, the Jews are leaving slavery in Egypt and they are traveling through the desert to the land of Canaan where Israel will set up its kingdom. Now, the reason this is important is because if we look at the the uh, religious context that the Jews are in in Egypt and the religious context that the Canaanites are in, the, the, the place the Israelites are going, it gives us a hint as to what is happening in Genesis 1. So, the Jews are leaving Egypt and they're going to Canaan. Now, Egyptian and Canaanite deity, or really all of religion, in the ancient world is entirely polytheistic, meaning they believe in many different gods. There's gods of the sea, there's gods of the sun, there's gods of the stars, there's gods of the crops, there's gods of fertility, and on and on and on and on and on. They believe in lots of different gods. And this is how the entirety of ancient uh, Near Eastern religion functioned. So 
when the author of the book of Genesis, presumably Moses, writes in the very beginning of, of the of, of the book of Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We get what probably doesn't seem like a radical concept to us, but in the ancient world would have considered would have been considered an extremely radical religious claim. And that is the claim of monotheism, the belief in one God. There is not another ancient religion that believed in a singular, all-powerful deity who created everything. That is a radical concept in the ancient world. So when Moses opens up his account of Genesis and what he gives is not an account of how there's one God who's more powerful than the other gods and the other gods have some uh, uh, rule over various pericopes of the universe. Uh, He doesn't do that. That to the ancient Jews traveling from Egypt to Sinai to Canaan was a massively radical concept. There's only one God. And that God is not a God of certain parts of the world. He's the God of everything. And he's the God who didn't delineate responsibilities of, uh, of creation to various other lesser deities. He's the God who creates everything. That is a radical concept in the ancient world. And it's difficult for us to picture that because we live in a culture steeped in over 2,000 years of monotheism. But... Those people, the people that originally received this text, were not people who were steeped in a 2,000-year monotheistic tradition. We are, so it's difficult for us to see the radical nature of the concept of monotheism. So, first, we have established there is one God. Radical monotheistic idea. But then we should also be asking questions, okay, well, what does this text reveal about who this God is? And the first thing we see is that he is the creator. He's the creator of everything. And now, this is fascinating because what we get first in the text of Genesis is that the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Once we have creation, God creates everything and and he he does so through his voice. And at the beginning, everything is, is, is without form. There's no shape to it. And it's void. It's empty. And what we see through the next six days of creation is the solving of that problem. So for instance, day one, light darkness, night and day. The light and the darkness are given shape. They're given form. Day two, let there be firmament in the midst of the waters. The separation from the sea, from the sky, the water is given form. And then, and then what do we see? That the, the sea parts and dry land and the habitat, the, 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 the trees, the vegetation, the plants, they're all given form. That's the first three days of creation. Now, the next three days of creation solve the second problem. The the problem of the world being formless is first fixed. And then the problem with it being void 
it's is fixed. So the the fourth day of creation, the sun, the stars, the moon are given to give uh, the, to to solve the problem of emptiness in the heavens, right? And then what what comes the birds and the fish filling the sea. And then we get the animals and mankind filling the dry land. So first God gives creation and nature its form and then he fills it. And then creation is no longer formless and void. Now I think this is really interesting and this gets to to an, an even deeper point. That is, if God is the creator... And he's creating everything in, in such a uh, an orderly process, solving the two problems of formlessness and, and emptiness in the world. God is creating everything for a purpose. Right? Isn't that what creation implies? That if something is made, it is made for a reason. God is making this purposefully. What does creation imply but purpose? Because God spoke creation into being, it is the creative expression of God's word. So I think that's a really important thing to note from from Genesis chapter 1 is that God creates the world and he does so purposefully. The, the, what, what's the second thing we get about God? Um, well, actually, in, in order to answer that question, I want to I want to answer the next two first. Then we'll go back to God because because that will give us an insight into into the next uh, uh, answer to the question about who when it comes to God. And, and that's the 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 next who is man. Who is man? What does this text communicate about? Man, and, and the first thing I think that's really obvious to note, but we overlook, is that God is a creature, or excuse me, man is a creature of God. He is created. Now, just like we talked about with creation, this means that man also is created with a purpose. It also means that man is not autonomous. In fact, everything man is and relies on for food or for life, weather, food, shelter, etc., all of those things rely upon God. So man is God's creation made with purpose given to him by God. And and uh, he's made in such a way that he relies upon God. I think there's a lot today. I, you, you hear this, this, this expression a lot in modern culture and that's self-identification, right? Like it, it, sometimes it's applied to gender, sometimes it's applied to career. I don't know, but the question is posed to many people, what do you self-identify as? And and I'm sure there are merits for that kind of language. Um, but I think oftentimes it is an expression of autonomy. It, it's saying I'm not identified by anything other than what I myself would like to be identified as. And I think that's really problematic. There, there, there are sociological problems with that, but I think there are theological, anthropological problems with that. And, and, and that's because man is not able to self-identify. He is identified by God. Why? Because 
Man is made by God. Man is God's creation created for an intended purpose given to him by God. So that also communicates a deep reliance of man on God. Okay, what else can we see about man from this? We've seen that man is not autonomous, that he's God's creation. He is imbued with purpose that God has put on his life. But we also see that man is the pinnacle of God's creation. He is the final creation. He's given dominion and stewardship over the rest of creation. This is enormous love, but it's also enormous responsibility. Because man is not given just to use and abuse creation as he would like. He is made to tend, to guard, to keep, to till, to steward the creation that God has given to mankind. Finally, and I think most importantly, we see from this text that man is made in the image and likeness of God. It's a pretty deep truth that God is made, or man is made in God's image. So I want to take a little bit to ponder what that really means. So first we can see that man is a physical being, right? He's, he's, he's a, a, he's a natural being. He's created uh, materially like the rest of creation and he's created just like the animals, but he's also not made just like the animals because over no other part of creation is it declared that, that it is made in God's image and likeness. So if man is created by God as a physical being, man is governed by physical and natural laws. I think that's fairly obvious. Mankind is governed by nature. But man is not just that. He is not governed purely by natural physical laws. He's also governed by spiritual laws that do not govern plants and animals. Man's governed by spiritual and moral laws. If we see a lion eat a gazelle in in cold blood, nobody looks at that and proclaims it to be immoral. No. Why? Because a lion is following its natural law. It eats the gazelle. But when we see a man kill another man in cold blood, we proclaim that to be wrong. Why? Because man is not governed purely by physical, natural laws. He's also governed by a spiritual and a moral law. I think that's really important to see. But the, 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 the final thing I want to focus on with image and likeness, and this gets back to our question of who God is, is image and likeness implies something. Now, I'm a father of four. I have four, four small children, um, and all of them, but especially my two sons look a lot like me. They're, they're like little Aaron Hartley's running around. They are in my image and likeness. And, and presumably as, as I raise them, they're going to take on some character traits of me. I can already see it. And, and, And not just for me, but also for my wife, which my children also look a lot like my wife. 
There's no surprise there. And as they grow up, they they begin to act in certain ways like me. And if you have kids, you you've probably seen this that they they pretend and they play and they do that in ways that like they're they're acting like their parents. That's what they 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 play like that. Why? Because they watch them and as they grow, they grow more and more into their image and their likeness. And I can see ways in, in myself that I'm like my parents. What does image and likeness imply? Sonship. Children. Mankind in the garden is made as a physical being, a natural being, governed by the, the laws of nature. He's made as a spiritual being, governed by spiritual and moral laws. And finally, he's created, and probably most importantly, as a child of God. Which tells us something about who God is and who man is. Who is God? God is the Father. He's not just the creator. He's not just the ruler. He's not simply in charge. He is the Father. And he creates in the garden a man made in his image and likeness. Adam, his son. So, I hope you can see that when I, I approach the text of Genesis 1, I, I'm not focused on questions about science. Because if we're focused purely on those questions, we miss all, of, all the rest of that deep, deep spiritual truth about who is God, what is creation, who is man. And if we miss those things, we miss massively important uh, uh, points that the beginning of the book of Genesis makes that's going to define much of how the rest we, uh, we read the scriptures. Because if we don't understand who God is, that God is creator and father, we don't understand that creation is created in love and with purpose, and we don't understand that man is God's son, we miss a lot. One other thing I want to focus on here, and that is that the role of Adam in the garden is also not purely one of just sonship. That's going to imply something else. And that's seen in, in Genesis 2.15. In, in the, the, we get in Genesis 1 this overarching poetic uh, uh, account of creation. And in Genesis 2, we actually have another account of creation that... that, that speaks of creation again in slightly different ways. Uh, m many people claim this to be a contradiction. That's only a contradiction if you have to, if you have to take the, the text of Genesis 1 as purely literal. I do not. So I do not see Genesis 2, the retelling of creation, to be contradictory at all. It's just retelling creation with different focuses. And, and one of those focuses we see uh, in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and to keep it. Now, those two words are what I want to focus on. The, the, the word to till and to keep. Now, those words in the Hebrew, there are the Hebrew words abad and shamar. And they are also used later on in the Pentateuch to describe the role of the Levitical priests in the temple of God. And they mean also, and they're translated this uh, uh, later on in the Pentateuch, as to serve and to guard. 
Now, if we couple that, the, the fact that, that the words used to describe the role of Adam in the garden are also the words used to describe the priesthood later on in the Bible, and we uh, couple that with the language surrounding what's in the garden, i.e. all of this, it's paradisical, there, there are gemstones everywhere, uh, and also the fact that there are four rivers flowing out, flowing out of the Garden of Eden then the picture we get of Eden is not that it is just this paradise, but it is a temple. It's a temple to God. And Adam is placed in the garden as not only God's son, but also God's priest. And what is the role of a priest? What does a priest do? Well, I think, namely, a priest's role is to bring God to the world. That, that's what a Catholic priest does. He consecrates the bread and the wine and brings Jesus Christ present in the Eucharist to his people. What is Adam placed in the garden to do? To bring God to the world. So Adam pla- or God places Adam in the garden. And he gives him dominion over everything. And he, he tells him to till this garden and to keep it. He tells him to serve and to guard. And the rivers flow out. Showing that the love of God, God's plan for the entirety of the world is one where God himself is spread to the ends of the earth. It's a pretty deep truth. And if we're looking at this purely literally, we're going to miss that. So what do we see? Again, who? Who? Uh, we get we get uh, God as creator and father. We get man as son and priest. We get creation as ordered. Why? To spread God's love. That is simply the purpose of creation. God creates this world in which his love can be spread throughout. I think that's pretty cool. Now, there's one thing within creation, however, that God says is not good. He proclaims everything good in chapter 1. But once we get to chapter 2, he says, there's something in this garden that is not good. Meaning, there's something that is missing. And what is that? That Adam is alone. This is not good. He needs a helper. And he needs a helper that's not like an animal. Right? He, what is Adam? Right? He is a physical being, sure. Which means he needs a, 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 a helper who is also a physical being. But remember, Adam is not just a physical being. He is a spiritual being. Which means he needs a helper that also is a spiritual being. So what does God do? He creates woman from the side of man. This seems to be a non-literal way of speaking. That We don't necessarily have to believe that God literally takes a rib out of Adam. Instead, this story communicates a deep, deep truth. That man and women are distinct, but unified. What does Adam say about Eve after she is created? He, he says, oh, th- he doesn't say, oh, this is somebody who's similar to me. No, he says, 
This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The relationship between Adam and Eve is described as a complete and utter unity that comes out of diversity. They are two, but they come together and they are made one. This is exemplified in the most basic of human relationships, sex. Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed. They are not affected by the strife that comes from the warring of the sexes. Instead, they're utterly united and without shame. And this is indeed the complete embodiment of what it means to be God's holy creatures living in God's holy land. Complete and utter harmony. And then the notes change. We go from a state of harmony to a state of disharmony with startling rapidity. Genesis chapter 3 details the fall of man. And we get this uh, next character who's introduced, the serpent. And the serpent asks the woman. He, he goes to the woman. I think that's fascinating. I, I don't think it's fascinating because it's communicating something about the weakness of women. It's certainly not doing that. I don't, I don't think it's fascinating because it, it's... it's uh, uh, discussing the inferiorness of women. I do not think that that is, is what this text is trying to communicate. Instead, what happens to Eve is a reflection upon Adam. Because there's, there's a little phrase, right? The, the serpent goes to, to Eve and, and he, he starts causing her to mistrust God. He says, did God really say? And then he focuses on the one command they are told not to do, to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Instead of the abundance of the rest of Eden, he focuses on the one thing that they are denied, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and he, and, and he, attempts Eve to take the fruit and eat of it. And then what does it say? That Eve gave the fruit to Adam who was with her. Why is it that when we hear about Adam in the fall, that we don't hear about him until we find out that he is also eating the fruit? You see... This is why it's important to understand the, the, the phrase to till and to keep. What is Adam's job? Is Adam's job is a, is, is a, is a priest. And what is the priest to do? To abad and shamar, to till and to keep, to serve and to guard. And the first action we see from Adam is that he is failing in his duty as a priest. He's not facilitating God to the world. Instead, he's doing the opposite of that. And he is silent in the face of Eve's temptation. And then he joins her. I think something really interesting happens after that. God walks into the garden. Now, I think this is another hint at the non-literal nature of this, right? God is walking in the garden. And what does he ask? He says, where are you? Adam, where are you? Yeah, it's fascinating, especially if we take a classical Christian definition of God, that God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. You're like, well, 
why is God asking this question? He knows the answer. He he knows where Adam and Eve are. So why is he asking where they are? I think that answer, the answer to that question is that he is inviting Adam and Eve toward repentance. Toward confession. And instead of accepting that offer of confession, Adam's response is, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, Not, yes, I did. He says, The woman whom you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Now, yes, he's definitely blaming Eve, which first of all, it is Adam's fault that this is happening. It is not purely Eve's fault. It is Adam's fault because he has failed in his duty as a priest. But notice what he says. He doesn't just say the woman gave it to me. He says the woman whom you gave to me, speaking to God. So who is Adam actually blaming for his own sin? God. He is doing the opposite of a confession, right? A confession is, I did this, I am sorry. Instead, he tries not only to put the sin on Eve, his wife, whom he was given to guard and to, and to serve, he puts it on God. God, you gave me the woman. The woman made me do it. It was ultimately your fault. This is the opposite of a confession. And, 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 and then to the woman, What is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent beguiled me. So the woman, what does she do? It was the serpent. In in both cases with Adam and Eve, instead of admitting their guilt and running in repentance to their father, they turn in on themselves and on each other and blame. Instead of turning to God in repentance and confession, they turn away from him. And they are cursed. Now, I think it's important to understand that these curses are natural. What I mean by that is, is uh, I'll use an analogy. Have you ever taken a really strong magnet and attached a nail to it? And what happens to that nail? It be, it also becomes magnetic. I've done this in like science classes before and you, as like an elementary schooler. And you can, you can attach a nail to that first nail and depending on how strong the magnet is, it will send magnetism down a line of nails, right? I hope you can picture that in your head. So the source of the magnetism for the final nail in this string is the magnet that is at the top. That w- Without that first magnet magnetizing the rest of the magnets, all of the magnetism in the nails ceases. Right? Remember as we talked about at the beginning, mankind is totally and completely reliant upon God. And what have they done in their sin and in their refusal to repent 
Well, they are detaching themselves from the magnet. Which means all of the other pieces in that chain are going to fall apart. So once man's relationship with God is like that first nail attached to the magnet. Once man's relationship with God is broken, man's relationship with other men and women is broken. Man's relationship with nature is broken. And that's what we see. We see uh, that that uh, to, to the man, Adam, uh, the, his, the curse is that the ground will be hard to till. Nature will now work against him. To the woman, through childbearing, women will now experience intense pain. And that chain of connection with God is broken. So all of the other relationships are also broken. But the text doesn't just leave us there. You see, in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we have what, what had been pla- classically called the Proto-Evangelium, which is, uh, I, b- I believe, a, a Greek word for, it means the first gospel. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you, meaning the serpent, and the woman, and between her seed and your seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I've also seen it as crush your head. God says to the serpent that there will be strife between the seed of woman and the seed of the serpent that will culminate in the seed of woman crushing the head of the serpent even while his own heel is stricken. Now, I think that is none other than a look toward the cross of Jesus Christ. That he is stricken and yet in the motion of striking the devil's head is crushed. I think it's a deeply symbolic way of looking forward to there. So Genesis 3.15, although, although we get the, 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 the loss of paradise, the loss of communion with God, the breaking down of mankind's relationship with, with man and woman and God and nature, we also have a statement of hope. I think that's important to find out. So, what does Genesis 1 through 3 tell us? Well, it tells us that we are made in God's image. We are God's children. It tells us that God is our creator, that we are utterly reliant upon God. It tells us that uh, the original purpose of mankind was to be a priest, to spread God to the rest of the world. And it tells us that mankind fell in sin in defiance of God and refused to repent. And it also tells us that God, ever since the beginning of the world, also has an eye toward man's salvation.
Well, that's it for us today on the Bible Readers Podcast. Thanks for joining me as I explore the great story of the Bible. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave me a five-star rating on iTunes. And please share this podcast with anyone you know who wants to learn more about the Bible. You can find me on Facebook by searching for Bible Readers Podcast. And if you like the show, you can ask me questions or engage in some great discussion uh, in the comments. Be on the lookout later for this week for my interview with Dr. Thomas Sheck, who's a professor of theology at Ave Maria University. I sat down with Dr. Sheck earlier this month to discuss his journey to Catholicism and how he reads Genesis 1 through 3. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of these great discussions. Again, thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next time on the Bible Readers Podcast.